And I think that was when it changed where I need to focus on helping others and ha having a North Star that's more than just making money. And the ultimate irony is when you don't focus on that, it just, it, it, it finds you. Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Today, we're excited to speak with Robbie Kwok, the Chief of Staff to the CEO at Slack, and also led a transition to remote work as a former Senior Vice President of People. Robbie's career has spanned strategy and M&A as some of the biggest names in tech, including Yahoo, LinkedIn, and Twitter. In this episode, we talk with Robbie about succeeding as a leader who doesn't like the spotlight, recovering from an incident that almost ended his career, and the key role relationship building has played in his growth. First off, Robbie, it's it's so awesome to have you join us today. Jay and I are huge fans, given that you are literally the forefather of both of our functions at LinkedIn, <laughs> which are BizDev and CorpDev. So it's great to see history come full circle and to have you on the podcast with us today. Something that Jay and I have been asking our guests to tee off the episode is what was your favorite food growing up? You know, it could be like a family dish. It could be Taco Bell. It could be anything. Curious if that is for you. Well, Angie, Jay, thanks for having me on this, uh, on this podcast. I'm really honored to, to talk to you both. I love to eat. Like I, I can eat anything when I was growing up. I'd say the thing that first popped into my head is my mom's fried rice. And you could stereotype all you want, but man, her fried rice was the best. And here's, here's why it really matters. She would make it for me and my brother, and we'd love it. Every time she makes it, we'd clean it up. And when I went to college, I went to Berkeley, we had a, uh, a little college dorm mini fridge with an even smaller freezer. And so every Sunday I go home, because I, I went to Berkeley, grew up in Fremont, she would cook a bunch of fried rice, put it in these sandwich size Ziploc bags. So, you know, good for one person, freeze it. So, and, and she'd laid it flat. So you can literally sack like 20 of them in the freezer. And every time I needed a, a hit of the fried rice in the dorms, I would just take it out and pop it in the microwave for a minute and a half. And it would be just like she made it at home. And so through the four years of college, she probably made thousands of those Ziploc bag fried rice. It's genius. That sounds so amazing. What was in the fried rice? Was it just like an egg scallion or were there a bunch of like sprinkles on so, top? Uh, eggs, scallion, usually either barbecue pork um, that, you know, she bought too, we had too much and she just chop it up as leftover and put it in the fried rice, chicken bits, um, carrots, some kind of vegetables, whatever's left over. And I don't really know what she put in there. Maybe it's the chicken bouillon powder. That's like basically MSG, um, but it's just tasty. Yeah, it's probably like half a cup of oil, put some like, you know, <sighs> ton of soy sauce, just stir fry that. That sounds so, amazing. So it's gorgeous. And it was, um, it was terrible because pretty soon the entire dorm floor knew I was doing this. 
And so they would basically eat into my inventory and you know, I'm happy to share, but it was painful to share. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. You're not running a nonprofit here, you know, <laughs> it's a great way to make friends though. And exactly. your freshman year. makes friends. It's like, it's like the movie wedding crasher that was just on and uh, Will Ferrell was living in the house. Have you guys seen it? Wedding crasher, maybe. Yeah. And yeah. He's living in the house and she's like, ma, meatloaf. So I can imagine myself saying, Ma, more fried rice. <laughs> Love it. Can never get enough fried rice. <laughs> and that's such a quintessential way for Asian mothers to show their love, you know, through through just like cooking you a ton of food. And it's funny. I remember one of my roommates in college, her mom used to do this too, where she's Korean. She just like bring back bags and bags of marinated Korean barbecue. And it was just like, we stacked in her freezer and we just make it. It was, it was so good. Well, I'm sure it was a really great, experience going to school pretty close to where you grew up right in Fremont and I know you also went to Mission San Jose High School in Fremont I have a lot of friends who went to MSJ and from what I know there it's a super intense very very pressure cooker environment you know and that's partially because a lot of the students who go there their parents are immigrants to that area and that has created a lot of the culture around that school. So I'd be curious to hear about how your experience there was, what your upbringing looked like in the Bay Area. So I was actually born in Hong Kong. I grew up in Hong Kong for the, for the first 10 years. And we immigrated, my brother and I and my mom immigrated to the Bay Area. So spent roots in Fremont. But when I came, we actually didn't speak any English. I, I didn't speak English. And so it was pretty rough to to learn the language and have to go to school, you get made fun of a ton because you know fifth grade, sixth grade kids are pretty mean when they when they see someone who doesn't understand what they're talking about. So I was uh, I was pretty determined to fit in quickly, and the first thing I had to do was to learn the language. And you know this is 1987, 1988. So my way of learning English was watching a lot of TV after school. And it was shows like Three's Company, Punky Brewster, Silver Spoon, The Jeffersons. And so I probably developed English pretty quickly, but not in the right way. And also listened to a lot of like hip hop, kind of going into R&B because that's what kids those days listen to. So I learned a lot of cuss words from Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre and the likes. I was happy to say I actually fit in pretty well after, after a couple of years. And you're right, MSJ has a lot of South Asians, East Asians, I think it was like 60 or 70% back then. And it was, uh, it was academically very competitive. If you were in a class and you're getting good grades, you had to really, really study hard for them because most of the things were graded on a curve. And I remember uh, in my senior year, I think at least 10 kids got into Stanford and Harvard out of a class of 400, that's, that's, that's a lot. And I think 40 or 50 people got into Berkeley. So I was pretty, pretty run of the pack, I guess. And in that kind of environment, you really, you really um, sort of push yourself to, to, to study hard and, and do as much as your potential allows you to. My mom was never somebody who was a tiger mom. So she, um, she didn't really push us to, to do well. I think it was just the fact that I was kind of turned off by the the immigrant coming here, not being able to speak and get made fun of that I had this sort of self-drive to, to improve and do better, improve other people wrong. 
And so that was what kind of got me going. In high school, I also played a lot of tennis. Not badminton though, my brother played that. But uh, tennis was something that also a lot of the Asian kids played. And so I'd say the group of people I associated with were were pretty um, well-rounded. And, uh, and I think that made a difference in how I grew up, how I developed. And the thing that, that even to this day that they make fun of me about is pop culture. Because I never grew up watching things like Sesame Street or Brady Bunch. And when they make a reference, I'm just like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And you know, they, they, they make fun of me, but that's like more in a joking way. But fast forward to, to Berkeley, I felt like I fit right in because I came from an environment where there are a lot of people who look like me. And for, for college, I made it a point to make sure I have a diversity of friends, not just hang out with the group of Asians that hang out together. And I found that to be useful because I knew that in the real world, it's not like that. It's actually the opposite. And to be able to, to connect with anybody, not just race, but gender, language, orientation, religion, uh, economic backgrounds, like I actually found that to be something I wanted to, to be skilled at. And so I, I made a point to, to do a lot of intramural sports um, I felt like that was an easy way to just kind of get to know people. So I played a lot of intramural basketball. I was pretty good for an Asian. <laughs> and uh, and so that was that was an effective way to get to know people. Um, this was before the time of Jeremy Lin, Yao Ming, right? So I'm sure after those guys hit the mainstream. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I paved the way for them. So, you know. <laughs> Love it. it was all okay. you. <laughs> it was all me. <laughs> But yeah, so I think for me, high school and, and college allowed me to, to connect with a lot of different people in, in ways that I don't think I would have otherwise have done, been able to if I, if I didn't have those experiences. Building relationships and networking has really fundamentally shaped the course of your personal life and professional life. Do you remember a time when that maybe became really concrete for you, that belief? Was it because you were going out and meeting all these different types of people who were playing tennis and from different economic backgrounds and different social backgrounds? I know for me, a lot of the idea of relationship building really came from those times in college by meeting a lot of different types of people. Um, was that kind of where the influence started for that type of way of thinking? I think there's a lot of that in college, but I, I would say Probably the biggest influence was when I was at Yahoo. So my third job coming out of school, I worked for a guy named Andrew Braccia, who was my boss at Yahoo for almost six years. And he fundamentally changed how I would think about a boss subordinate relationship. Because before Yahoo, I was in investment banking and it was like, MD is like the God, and then there's everybody else in between. And then me as the analyst was like, not the God, the opposite of that. And you basically have to, if you want to talk to the MD, you got to go through the different chains and, you know, it'd be, you'd be lucky if they even know your name. And with Andrew, who, who was very senior at the time, he, he didn't have to treat me like I'm nobody. In fact, he treated me like I'm really somebody. And he didn't just tell me what to do at work. He got to know me as a person 
And I looked up to him, not as a, not only as a boss, but as a, as a person, as a leader, as a, as a human. And the way he would make connections, not just with me, but with his peers and everybody around him was the, the best I've ever seen. And, and he was the one I modeled how I behave and build relationships afterwards. He was literally one of the first people who would ask me about my, my wife, my family, my kids. And 2007 was the last time I worked for him. He went to Excel VC after that. To this day, he still sends me and my family a Christmas gift every Christmas. This is 13, 14 years after I've worked for him. He's never missed a year. And it's, it's just incredible that I think he does this for a lot of people. So he must send out like 10,000 gifts a year. I don't know. Like, it's just, it's amazing how he does it. And so to me, that's like the, the gold standard. And so whenever I work with people after that, I take the time to get to know them very personally, check in on them, not just ask generic questions like, how are you doing? How's your weekend? But really like, Hey, your, your brother had some issues the other time we talked, like, how's he doing? and really connect with people that way. And, and I found that to be just, just very helpful, both personally and professionally. I, I love those stories. And I love how still to this day, he's, he's I, I guess we're now assuming that he is Santa Claus, um, sending over, <laughs> sending all these different gifts to people. Um, that's amazing. I, in the early 2000s, there was this idea of like the PayPal mafia and how all the different people from PayPal in the early 2000s went off to go create and invest in all these very successful companies. I think there's also definitely something there about the Yahoo mafia. <laughs> so many successful people that had came from like the early days of Yahoo. And, and like you mentioned, like the relationships that you've developed there have clearly still impacted you today. Talk to us about the relationships that you developed at Yahoo and how that's, how that's kind of trickled um, amongst like the rest of your personal and professional life. Yeah, I think Yahoo Mafia is super strong and I don't think it gets a lot of airtime, but that's okay. But you've got folks like Andrew, who's a very successful VC at Excel, investing in companies like Slack and Cloudera and a bunch of others. Jeff Weiner, who was the CEO at, at LinkedIn. Now Ryan Roslansky, who is the CEO at LinkedIn. Rob Solomon, who's the CEO at, at uh, GoFundMe. Jerry Yang, you know, who became an investor after, after uh, Yahoo. So lots of, lots of really prominent people. And I think that the thing about the, the Yahoo, ex-Yahoo people, I feel like is really based on relationships. They, they're also intelligent, but there's a certain humility to, I think, to, to the ex-Yahoos that they're not, they're not seeking attention for attention's sake. They really try to do well by others. They really try to be leaders that lift others up. When I, when I talk about compassionate leaders uh, who are also very competent and capable. And, and I think those are the kinds of people that, that I work with at Yahoo. And that's why I think produced a lot of great leaders after that. And Robbie, part of your leadership style or your style, I guess, as a, as a person, you don't actually do a lot of these. So we feel very honored first and foremost, <laughs> but moreover that you don't do a lot of these because you actually don't like being the spotlight and talking about yourself too much. And I'm trying to like draw a link here between what you just, just described about the Yahoo mafia not being super in the news and out there and your own humility around your leadership style and not being very uh, flamboyant as a leader. I, I'd be really curious to understand some of the underpinnings as to why that's your preference. Could you tell us a bit about that? 
I, I think it probably came from how, how I was raised. And it's funny because I'm going to talk about my brother in a second, who is the opposite of, of me in terms of seeking attention in a good way. So for me, I enjoy way more as the person behind the person, the enabler, the person that makes things happen. It gives me way more joy to know that I have made a difference in something than to actually get the credit. And I, I honestly don't really know where that came from, but even in like basketball, I prefer to be the person that passes the ball for a layup or play defense versus actually shooting the ball. In tennis, I way prefer playing doubles than singles. Uh, and that's what I did in high school. I think it's just this upbringing where maybe it's the Asian background where you know, serve others, don't need to take the credit, um, kind of let others shine and you, you, you take a back seat. But to me, that's just more of who I am. I don't like the spotlight. I, I do like to make other people look good. And so contrast that to my brother, who is, uh, who is actually in Hong Kong. He's a singer, songwriter, actor in Hong Kong. So maybe, maybe uh, he, he took all the desires that I have and sh channeled to his career, but he, uh, he is loosely known as the Iron Man of Hong Kong because he looks like uh, Robert Downey Jr. You can Google him. His name is Eric, Eric Kwok. And, uh, and I think that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> he actually does look like I'm looking him up right now. <laughs> this is awesome. He has like the same facial hair and everything. It's like a hexagon. That is a very that's handsome so man. Wow. <laughs> Eric, I love it. Eric. There you go. But anyway, so <laughs> enough about Eric. This is focused on your story. See how um, I'm trying to deflect? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's like a prime example of that. And I want to dig in a bit here, Robbie. What you're saying around being that person in the background who helps others shine. I resonate with that a lot. And I think Jay as well from our conversations, you know, that's kind of like the role that we like to play with our friends, with our families at work sometimes. But I want to bring in work here a bit and the the American culture of work, right? Where behavior like that isn't per se as rewarded as being that guy who's the loudest person in the room, who always wants to say something, who likes being in the spotlight. Time and time again, you see that kind of leadership being rewarded in mainstream media. So how did you how do you think about that dichotomy? How did you think about that idea of what's rewarded in terms of leadership style? And how did you navigate that throughout your career as you rose through the ranks? Yeah, I, and I, I thought about this um, before doing the podcast because I realized it is, a, it is a dichotomy. And I'm not saying everyone should do what I'm saying. I think it works for me, but it may not be the right thing for others. But for me, what I have learned is it's more important and more effective to be who I am, to be authentic. And that accrues more success to me than if I'm doing something that I'm really not. Because I think that will just come off as fake. And people have really good fake detectors. And if I'm trying to say something or get credit, it's just going to come off as phony. And it's just not going to work. So the way I think about it is if I help enough people be successful and don't get me wrong, I have some agency in who I really want to help. So it's not like I have to help a bunch of people I don't like, 
but the people I serve and, and help are people that I think will also look after me. They will also help me rise up and, and help my career. But I don't need to tell them every single achievements I've made or tell others every single thing I've done because I, I know that the people I help are the type of people that I want to associate myself with. Andrew, I mentioned, Jeff Stewart, the CEO at Slack. These are people that I've worked with before that I know are genuinely good people who at the right moment at the right time will, will help me. I really want to double click on that perspective because I think the way that a lot of people think about their career or personal life is if you are good to me and you help me, then I'll help you. I'm wondering how you've become more thoughtful about that perspective of how to identify the people that you want to help. You've mentioned that, you know, authenticity is, is one thing, obviously, if they want to help you, that's, that's another indicator, but how, how do you figure that out? Because sometimes for me, I feel a little bit overwhelmed. I'm curious if you've had like a, a thought process or framework or something on how you decide how to help, like who to help. Yeah, that's a really important question. And, you know, in looking back, I think my strategy was help as many people as I can. And that was in the early days. But then you start to recognize signals on who are the actual people that really appreciates that, who would reciprocate the help when you need it, and who are the ones who are more or less taking advantage of, of who you are. And to not get upset about working with people who take advantage of you is really important because that will happen throughout your career. But to understand that the characteristics, the signals, the behaviors of those people are people you probably want to avoid in the long run will help you choose the kinds of people in the long run that will appreciate your work, will help you rise up, and then you, 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 you focus on them. So it, I, I love that because when you begin your career, just start helping as many people as possible. And then you start to develop that muscle of these are the people that are actually appreciative of it. And these are the people that also want to support me and then slowly start to be more conscious of your time and, and who you help. With this perspective that you have towards other people, people clearly trust you. Like if you, if you read publicly about your relationship with Stuart Butterfield at Slack, like he reached out and was like, you got to come help me. The scaling of the organization and, and Robbie, a lot of these things happened after a scandal, something that happened publicly, very publicly, which is opposed so much to what we've been speaking about, like throughout this conversation of not being in the spotlight, not having attention. Would love if you could talk, talk to us about what that was and, and how that made you feel in the moment and, and how you were able to recover from that, because it touches on a lot of the things that we've been speaking about so far. Yeah, I'm more than happy to go into it. So the the incident you referenced is when I was, uh, how old was I? Maybe like 30, maybe 29, 30 years old. Still relatively early in my career. Um, I was at Yahoo and I was considering whether or not to go into the, the buy side, hedge fund side of things. And so started to network with with people to, to get to know that industry. And I think... Back then, I wasn't thinking about consequences as much as I should have. And when you've had a pretty successful career for the first eight or 10 years, you don't really think like how, how you can ruin it. And so when I started to talk to people from the hedge fund side, it, it's, 
in retrospect, it's very obvious that they were asking for inside information and they were giving me inside information about certain companies. And I was just not smart enough and probably too greedy to, to recognize that I shouldn't have traded on certain inside information, but I did. And it happened in 2000, I wanna say 2008, but it didn't really come to light until 2012 when I was at LinkedIn. And so that's actually why I left LinkedIn is because I didn't want any kind of articles to be associated with LinkedIn. But the, the lesson there was never think of yourself as invincible. Even, even if you have a, a thriving career or everything you wanted in your personal life, having, doing hard work and living your life with integrity is just super important. I made, I think I made like $5,000 from that trade, but the amount of upside I gave up on the LinkedIn equity was, you know, many, many times more than that. And it would probably have been easy to hate someone or wondered why this happened to me, but it's really important to just look inward and say, look, this happened because you made a choice. You did something. Nobody made you do anything. And so when I realized that it was a decision I made that was an error, I had the power to fix it. I had the power to change. And, you know, I was unemployed for about a year dealing with all the legal stuff. And I had a lot of good conversations with people, people outside of tech. And it was very clear to me that I was just too focused on making money, too focused on career, too focused on myself. And I think that was when it changed where I need to focus on helping others and ha having a North Star that's more than just making money. And so I'd say that's probably when the switch went off in my head, where I think I had found my calling, which is to, to genuinely help people, help others. My goal is to just help others rise up and give them credit and never really thought too much about making money. And the ultimate irony is when you don't focus on that, it just, it, it, it finds you. And so I, I learned a ton from, from that experience. And uh, as much as it's weird for me to say, I'm actually really glad it happened to me because I think if it didn't happen to me, I think something much worse would have happened later in my life that may be irreparable. Everything happens for a reason. And I think that was a way that the higher ups was telling me, dude, slow down, you're reckless. Like you need to pay, pay a price here. And, and I, think, I think it's important to recognize that. Thanks so much for sharing that, Robbie. I think resilience through hardship like that and also ownership of the situation, those are those are both hallmarks of incredible leadership and strength. So thanks so much for sharing that with us. And on this idea of helping others and also of an underpinning here that I'm trying to tease out of kind of like personal transformation at Slack, something that I found super fascinating and uh, I admired a lot was your step into a people role, you know, a, a human resources role, which is such a pivot from a classic strategy and ops or corp dev, biz dev role. Could you tell us a bit about your decision-making process for going into that role? And in particular, I'd be curious to hear about the external response to you taking on that role too, you know, because you're stepping into a role where folks who look like you or look like me or look like Jay typically don't go into. So it wasn't something I was, was gunning for. So, you know, when Slack was about 700 people, 
we started to look for a head of HR externally. And Stuart interviewed a, a bunch of people, but never really found the right person. And through his own network, he got advice that maybe he should consider somebody internal, but possibly from a different background. And he and I started to talk, he came to me. And at first I was like, you really don't want any of this, like as your head of HR, this being not just the, the felony record, which of course he knew before he hired me, but also like, I love going to Vegas and I say a lot of un-PC things and, and all that. And so he said, look, I'm trying to maximize upside over minimize downside here when I'm building a company. And yes, I get there's some, some warts here, but you know the culture well. You're a good leader. People trust you. I trust you. I think there's a lot of upside here where I think you as the head of HR can transform the culture uh, of the company and take, take it to the next level. And so for me, that was a, a really big honor for even Stuart, any, any CEO to ask me to do that. But it was also very frightening because I've never done the job. It's a big responsibility for, for a company like Slack. In the end, I decided to, to do it. And the agreement he and I had was, look, as soon as you think I am not doing well in this job, you just have to tell me and I will find myself a replacement. Like no, no questions asked, no, no feelings hurt. And fast forward three years, we were able to, to hyper growth the company, to build a pretty good culture. We went public and recently hired a chief people officer to, to take the job while I transitioned to be Stewart's chief of staff. And I think it is, uh, it is you're right, it's not, it's not a field that a lot of Asian Americans are in, let alone being the head of HR. But I think it goes back to what I said about um, working with people that you wanna work with, you have agency in that. And Stuart was one of those people that I felt like if I was able to help him and his company out, he would take care of me and recognize what I can bring to the company. And so he took a chance on me and I'm grateful for that, both bringing me into the company despite my, my record, but also gave me a chance to, to lead an organization that helped transform the company. That was a huge honor. And, and I would be remiss to, say, to not say the people who worked on the people team also gave me a chance because they didn't have to work with somebody with no HR experience, but they stayed with, with me, with the, with the team, with the company, and, and I couldn't do it without them. Robbie, there's something, there's something very special about you. There's <laughs> something about how you're able to connect with people and, and support people and, and go through difficult moments and still be resilient. You've already given us so many great lessons and, and pieces of advice from your personal and professional life, but I'm wondering if you did something really well early in your career, or you would provide this guidance to someone else kind of starting their career, what would you tell them? Gosh, I think... Try not to focus too much on success. And by that, I mean, whether you measure success by the amount of money you make, your bank account, the number of high profile projects you do or whatever it is that you measure success by, try, try not to focus too much on, on those things because in your twenties, whatever success you've had will pale in comparison to what you will get in your thirties and forties. It's just, it's just a fact. You're just going to be more and more successful. So the most important things to focus on in your early careers is learning and establishing a really healthy and useful network, both in your personal life and your professional life. 
and I'll talk about each briefly. For professional, I think that makes a lot of sense where work with people you want to work with, work with people who could take you to different places, different companies, and uh, and find success there. And personal life is also super important. I was fortunate enough to meet my now wife back in college. And through some of the hardest working years in banking and Yahoo and, and the insider trading and all the startups, she's never once wavered. And I think that stability at home is really important for any kind of professional stability that, that you would want. I don't think I mentioned this, but we have four kids and there is no stability at home from that standpoint. It's complete chaos, but having a family really grounds you in what, what truly matters in life. Because I don't know how many more years I got in, in professional life, but I hope I'm not working until I die. And so you want to make sure that you have that point of view where your personal life and personal well-being should be way more important than what you do in your professional life because of that. Thanks so much for tuning into Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time. Thank you.